Hi there, listeners. I'm Robin Anir, and you're listening to Nothing on TV, a podcast that ransacks Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Listen to this. It's from page two of the Melbourne Age on Monday, August 17th, 1874. The officials at the public library have, for some time past, been much annoyed owing to the mysterious manner in which the soap placed on the washstand for public use at the entrance to the reading room has disappeared. Those petty thefts became of such frequent occurrence that the matter was reported to the police and on Friday a piece of soap was marked by a constable and placed on the washstand. A man came out of the reading room shortly after and put the soap in his pocket. He had not proceeded many yards when he was pounced on by the constable, who found the piece of soap on him and conveyed him to the lockup. Robert Nelson, who was very deaf and afflicted by symphitis dance, claimed that he'd inadvertently slipped the piece of soap into his pocket, but the magistrate had him pegged as a mean, contemptible thief and jailed him for 14 days for a piece of soap. And it wasn't even a proper cake of good, yellow, all-purpose soap. It was just a snip, maybe the size of a domino. You see, every morning, the Melbourne Herald tells us, the soap supplied for ablutionary purposes at the public library is cut into very minute pieces. Whose job was that, I wonder, as a curb against theft? And these miserable soap shavings would disappear several times each day, making a Herald columnist, who went by the sobriquet, the lounger, wonder whether the culprit might not be some individual who suffers from a mania for accumulating pieces of this cleansing article. In fact, if there was anyone who had a mania about it, it was the lounger himself. Time and again, he worked himself into a lather on the subject of the library washstand and its soap. The other day, he wrote in 1881, I saw a dirty-looking man slinking out of the library. Instinct informed me at once that he had boned the soap. He meant stolen it. I approached him, fixed him with my eye, and in a hollow voice demanded, How are you off for soap? He started guiltily and moved away as swiftly as his dilapidated boots would permit him. And who could blame him? On going into the lavatory, Oh, so this wasn't the soap in the reading room hand basin. On going into the lavatory, I found my suspicions were correct and that the saponaceous necessary had vanished. Six years later, the lounger had abandoned his beat, but others were still keeping vigil. A piece of soap provided for use in the lavatory at the public library, reported the Argus one Wednesday morning in January 1887, has had a quite eventful history. It seems that Alfred Barber, an attendant at the library, growing irked at the great inconvenience caused by repeated soap thefts, and of course you couldn't chain the soap to the sink the way that cups were chained to public drinking taps in the street, so growing irked, he resolved to catch the perpetrator or perpetrators in the act. As bait, he placed a fresh piece of soap at the lavatory hand basin, and within just ten minutes he saw a youth of dirty appearance named Thomas Gleave, after looking around, cautiously put it under his coat. Alfred Barber handed Gleave over to the police, then returned the soap to the hand basin. 
only for it to be lifted again minutes later, this time by Dudley Lovett, a hawker aged 18. He, likewise, was hauled off to the lockup and the soap again put back in its place to be stolen a third time that day by one Joseph Collins, a labourer. In court next day, Gleave, who was of dirty appearance, you'll recall, offered the plausible defence that he needed the soap to wash a dirty shirt. The magistrate was unmoved. The best punishment, he said, would be to compel Gleave to eat the soap. In the event, the sentence was three days in prison. Still, the dirty shirt defence must have carried some weight, since Collins got seven days for the same crime, and Lovett, who had priors, got 14, again, for a piece of soap, and an abbreviated one at that. But the petty and dastardly thefts at the library didn't stop at soap. Oh, no. Two days ago, and this was the lounger again back in April 1878, two days ago, the brass studs of the water taps in the lavatory were wrenched off and carried away to be sold for maybe tuppence to a scrap dealer. Throughout the 1860s and 70s, thefts of personal items belonging to library users were reported as very frequent occurrences. An Inverness cape, a thing that'll be familiar to some listeners from the Have You Seen My Poncho Cloak episode of Nothing on TV, an Inverness cape was stolen in 1863, but the commonest items taken were hats, since it was customary, if not actually a rule, to remove one's hat upon entering the library and leave it under a chair or on a table whilst browsing the shelves. One Saturday in April 1872, a plainclothes police officer placed a hat in a corner where he could see it without being himself observable, and shortly after he saw a young fellow named George Anderson pick it up and walk away. The officer walked after him and saw him safely to the lockup. Police were again posted to the library after a rash of thefts in the winter of 1875, and one of them was rewarded on a Tuesday evening by catching a young man walking out with an umbrella cunningly concealed in the leg of his trousers. The stiffness of his gait, said the Australasian, attracted attention, and on being taxed with theft, he pleaded guilty, produced the umbrella, and that would have been something to see, like a conjuring act on the library steps, and admitted that he'd previously stolen two others. A respectable-looking lad, he pled destitution as his excuse for the theft, but was given three months in prison for each umbrella. Without doubt, though, the larcenous activity at the library that attracted most notice, in the newspapers and presumably outside of them too, was the theft of books. In 1861, several valuable books were found to have been abstracted from the British Poets and Literature section. The reports didn't state how many books were missing, but in an unprecedented and unpopular move, that part of the library was closed, avowedly till the perpetrator of the theft is brought to light. A reader, discommoded by the closure, wrote into the Herald to ask, reasonably enough, with all due respect to the vigilance and attention of the librarian and his assistants, is it not possible that the missing volumes might have been only mislaid and not stolen, as it is alleged? In the hurry of departure from the reading room, a stranger might carelessly replace a volume that he may have been perusing in another part of the room. This view of the case is to some extent strengthened by the fact that three of the supposed abstracted volumes have already been discovered in another part of the library. 
It was three or four weeks before the padlock came off British poets and literature, after five of the missing volumes were found in the possession of an old blackguard named Duncan Harrington. One of the assistant librarians confirmed that Harrington had been seen in the library and identified the books, three of them, volumes of the Arabian Nights, as library property. Not all the missing books were recovered, though, and so Harrington was offered a reduced sentence if he would reveal their whereabouts and remanded for a week to ransack his memory, but in vain, and he was sentenced to six months with hard labour. Harrington had tried to dispose of the books to second-hand booksellers, and one of them had turned him in. You'd not infrequently read in the papers of books stolen in ones and twos and straight away hawked to a bookseller or pawnbroker for the price of a meal or a drink or a stick of tobacco. And for a single volume, like a Euclid taken and pawned in 1858 or a Chambers edition of Scottish Ballads in 1863, the thief, if caught, could usually expect three months with hard labour. That was the sentence in 1866 imposed on an elderly man named John James for stealing a copy of Reitstapp's Armorial General, a standard work on heraldry with colour plates illustrating coats of arms. A report in the Melbourne Age noted that the prisoner said he was suffering from hunger when he took the book and it had been much damaged by leaves having been torn from it. Despite how that sounds, the inference, I think, isn't that the thief had eaten the pages, but that he tore out some of the plates to sell them separately. At the end of 1864, Joseph Smith, a man above 50 years, stood trial at Ballarat after he approached two booksellers with a quantity of books that turned out to be stolen from the Melbourne Public Library. 28 books in all have been recovered, reported the Ballarat Star, and from nearly the whole of them, the library stamp has been obliterated. In his pitch to the Ballarat booksellers, Smith claimed the books had come from the library on board an American warship. This was during the Civil War. But in spite of his attempts at obliteration, the books still bore telltale marks of ownership by the Melbourne Public Library. George Bortman, acting sub-librarian, travelled up to Ballarat to examine the volumes and give evidence that the library books were all stamped on the first and last pages and on the covers, and here was a trick for young players, on the 91st page. Ha uh-huh. ha. In 1865, one Henry Williamson was charged with stealing 37 books from the library, as was the bookseller he sold them to. Williamson, who'd twice served time for the same offence, pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 12 months jail. Cornelius O'Regan, the bookseller, pleaded not guilty, and he was defended in court by Butler Aspinall, the same Butler Aspinall who, 10 years earlier, had successfully defended several of the freedom fighters from the Eureka Stockade. He was now between gigs as a Member of Parliament. Representing the library was Mr Shepherd, standing in for the librarian Mr Tulk, who was holidaying in England. Mr Shepherd stated that the 37 books found missing at the last stock take would be worth, on average, five shillings each. Whereupon Mr Aspinall questioned him closely, going through the basket of stolen books one by one. Here is a life of Jean d'Albert of Navarre by Margaret Walker Freer, he said. What's the value of Margaret Walker? The librarian. The value of the book would be to those who wished to read it. Mr Aspinall. Hmm. 
Here are the adventures of Coulter on the coast of South America. Whoever read Coulter? The librarian. I have. Mr Aspinall. Then I pity you. But here's a volume of Bone. This would have been Henry G. Bone, a prolific lexicographer and anthologist. Here's a volume of Bone, said Aspinall. What's the value of this to a tradesman? The librarian. Well, the published price is two shillings and sixpence, but it is bound. Mr Aspinall. Well, then, if the value of a book is in its binding, why not have a bookbinder as the public librarian? Here's the cottager in America. Would anyone in Victoria give a shilling for it? The librarian. It is bound. Mr Aspinall. Then the value of a book is in its binding. The cottager in America, in binding, would be more valuable than Shakespeare in boards? He didn't wait to hear the answer, but reached for the next book. Here's Geraldine by Miss Agnew. Who was Miss Agnew? The librarian. She was the daughter of Sir Andrew Agnew, who was well known in London. And here, the press report, this was from the Argus, inserts the word laughter in brackets, like a stage direction. Then... Mr Aspinall. Oh, yes, of course. People in Victoria would give five shillings for Geraldine by Miss Agnew, daughter of the famous Sir Andrew, well known in London. If poor Mr Tulk was compelled to look at all these books, I don't wonder that he was obliged to take a holiday in England. Under further examination by Aspinall, the librarian shepherd admitted that the cost of the book's uniform library binding was four shillings and sixpence per volume making the books themselves worth, by his own valuation, just sixpence each. And then it transpired that Mr O'Regan, the bookseller, hadn't been in his shop when Williamson brought the books in. It was Mrs O'Regan who'd unwittingly purchased them. So O'Regan was discharged, and Mr Shepherd's humiliation had been for nothing. If you read through news reports spanning the 1850s to the 1880s, you get the distinct impression that books were mostly removed from the library not to sell, but for personal use. The library was open from 10am till 10pm, but not on Sundays. Most people worked six days a week then, leaving Sundays for leisure, including reading. Anecdotally, it seemed it was a pretty common practice to borrow books from the library, vigilant librarians and the door porter notwithstanding, and to return them surreptitiously, though not perhaps to their proper place on the shelves or in their proper condition. The newspapers from time to time acknowledged as much. He was the leader in 1864. Probably, as is generally urged in extenuation of such scoundrels, the volumes are not usually taken animo ferandi, that is, with the intention to steal, but merely borrowed to be read at leisure and returned at convenience. And in the age, in 1865, it's a matter of notoriety that volumes are borrowed and after a time secretly returned to the shelves, soiled and defaced. That remark followed a report of a singularly impudent communication to the librarian of the public library. The communication, a letter, in fact, had accompanied a parcel of books in a most dilapidated condition, and it ran as follows. Sir, I wish to restore the books in this parcel to the Melbourne Public Library from which place I stole them some three years ago. I am sorry for the deed, and I hope the soiled books may be cleaned and restored for the use again of the public. I am, sir, your obedient servant, Anonymous, Sydney, October 6, 1865. 
the Melbourne Public Library, now State Library Victoria, was not a lending library. Under its rules, no book was permitted to leave the premises. Even so, many who used the library would have been accustomed to also using lending libraries. Practically every town and suburb had a mechanics institute complete with a library from which, for a small fee, you could borrow books. And from around 1860, the Melbourne Public Library did lend out boxes called travelling libraries of specially selected, presumably lesser value, books to mechanics institutes and the handful of municipal free libraries, an arrangement which may, said the leader, have given some colour to the popular notion that the establishment should be treated rather as a gratuitous Stevens or Mullen, both of these were booksellers who also lent books out for a fee, rather than as strictly a place of reference and study. All round, you can see how people might easily have formed the idea that library books were, or should have been, for borrowing, and that there was no real harm in borrowing books from the Melbourne Public Library. When John Pearson was charged with stealing two books from the library in 1863, they were found between a couple of mattresses at the immigrant's home where he was employed in a generally useful capacity, an assistant librarian gave evidence that he had frequently seen the prisoner at the public library perusing the series to which these two books belong. They were both adventure yarns, published under the juvenile library imprint. But Pearson denied having taken them. According to a report in The Age, he had frequently seen the inmates of the immigrants' home with books obtained from the public library, which made it sound like a kind of off-site reading room. George Ash, a boy of about 18 years who'd recently arrived in Melbourne from the country, was nicked in 1864 after he left a book belonging to the public library on the table after breakfast, and Mrs Heap, his landlady, sent it up to the library. In his defence, Ash stated he had intended to return the book. That good intention, plus a sterling character reference, saw him discharged with a caution, an almost unheard of outcome, and one that it was speculated in the press, would very likely embolden the perpetrators of these despicable thefts. In July that same year, 1864, one William G. Mitchell was charged not just with stealing a book, but with willfully destroying public library books. Now, what an interesting character Mitchell seems to have been. Although he too was aged about 18, he was employed as a journalist on the Herald, and also had been in the habit of writing leading articles for other papers like the Melbourne Penny Journal and the Dispatch. These articles, with titles like Exploits of a Melbourne Detective, sound rather like sensation stories, and his byline read W.G. Mitchell, Esquire, Author of The Mask, etc. There seems to have been a strong suspicion, and it's one that I share, that Mitchell was not all he claimed, that he was in fact a con man, or at least had the makings of one. Like the last of the book thieves I mentioned, he was turned in by his landlady. Mitchell was a lodger at the house of Jane Lord in Queen Street, and inside a box in his room, she found a book bearing public library stamps, together with sheafs of pages torn out of other volumes. She took the lot to the library, handing them to a sub-librarian, and the book... The Beneficial Effects of the Christian Temper by Mrs. Frances King is still on the shelf there. You can see it at my show page. That's robinanear.com slash nothing on TV.
As for the loose pages she found, they were an essay on suffrage from what the Argus called a chartist or ultra-radical miscellany entitled The Black Dwarf, as well as some pages torn from a bound volume of The Crypt or Receptacle for Things Past, an antiquarian literary and miscellaneous journal. Henry Sheffield, sub-librarian, testified that on applying the leaves to the copies of the books in the library, those leaves were found to have been torn out. Mitchell's defence was that he had only borrowed the books and taken them home without any felonious intent. Two of the books he'd returned to the library, but with pages missing. He claimed that his landlady's children must have torn them out, but it was noted in court that the pages had been removed very neatly so as not to tear across the print. Mitchell claimed to have borrowed the books in order to make extracts or take notes for the article he was writing, but if, said the Argus, as is believed by the officials at the library, the prisoner was accustomed to transfer these pages without alteration into his leading articles, the unsuspecting readers of these publications must have been sadly imposed upon. Not just a thief, then, but a plagiarist. The magistrate in the case, said the report in the age, addressed Mitchell in strong terms upon his conduct, aggravated as it was by his being educated, if he was educated as he professed. The sentence, well, to everyone's surprise, there was no sentence imposed, only a fine of £10, which, since Mitchell was unable to pay, defaulted to a month in jail. This, when the usual punishment was three months per book. The Argus supposed that Mitchell's youth must have accounted for the leniency, but that can't be right, since lads younger than him had in recent months received the usual sentence. I'll wager it was his apparent respectability, as well as his con man's charm, that swayed the magistrate. And not only the magistrate. A convicted murderer named Christopher Harrison was hanged at Melbourne Jail a couple of weeks after Mitchell's trial. And on the scaffold, asked if he had any last words, he spoke at some length about the flaws of the penal system, as witnessed by himself. It was the custom, he said, to allow all prisoners to meet indiscriminately in the prison yard, and thus men guilty of a paltry theft were made to associate with prisoners who had committed the very gravest offences. As an instance, he himself, a murderer, came frequently in contact with the young man who had only taken a few books from the public library. This was surely William Mitchell. The boy, Harrison went on, was a lad of some mental culture, and the effect of his association with villains of the worst character would be, as any judge of human nature must know, to make him as abandoned as his prison companions. Well, no sooner was Mitchell out of jail than he was misrepresenting himself at Geelong and later at Ballarat, obtaining money and goods by means of false and fraudulent pretenses and passing dodgy checks. I wonder what became of him and who he became. For a while, I know, he travelled with a magic lantern show, supplying humorous and educational patter to accompany the slides. And after that, the trail goes cold. But back to the books. Incidents of library books having been mutilated or defaced, usually by having pages torn out, seem not only to have been more frequent than actual theft, but were infinitely more reviled by the press. No form of reprehension, thundered the leader in 1863, can be too strong for the vileness of such acts. 
and the herald likewise excoriated those who meanly stole what they were too idle to copy and who spoiled a whole work rather than undergo half an hour's labour, thus rendering costly books valueless to all but themselves by ruthlessly destroying their completeness. They look upon a volume as a loaf to be sliced away as it is required, or perhaps they are casuists who comfort themselves that they put their pilferings to good uses. The librarian Mr Tulk, back from England, was quoted as saying that the civil service examinations have proved a perfect curse to the place for great havoc, both in felonious mutilation, try saying that, and absolute theft, has been made among educational books of all sorts, and especially volumes containing sample university and civil service examination papers. The library's annual report for 1875 stated that discreditable acts of mutilation are unfortunately not found to rest in ordinary volumes, but chiefly in works on science and abstruse subjects. Pretty clearly, then, the tearing out of pages from public library books was an almost exclusively white-collar crime, and not one perpetrated, as some would have it, by rascals from sheer love of mischief. In fact, an 1874 report in the Australasian, reviewing the record of such crimes, declared that Mutilations of volumes, wherever they have been discovered, have always shown the depredators to be men of education. And the report went on to refine the typical culprit's collar type from white to backwards facing. It is a fact that some of the choicest volumes of sermons on the shelves have had whole pages cut from them with the penknife, evidently by clergymen who wanted sermons for use on succeeding Sundays. In one case, the thief had actually stolen an eloquent discourse against the sin of theft. Ha! So the plagiarising William Mitchell wasn't the only one, nor the worst of them. And these petty larcenies are common in the newspaper room of the library too, complained the Herald. Whole pages of newspapers have been cut out to the infinite loss of honest readers. Back in June 1860, a young man named Joseph Julef found himself in court after cutting out a short paragraph from a month-old copy of the Argus in the library's newspaper room. It seems he'd just served a month in prison for creating a disturbance at the Melbourne hospital because he could not have boiled eggs for breakfast. And now he was determined to destroy the newspaper record of his misdemeanour. He must have imagined that the libraries would be the only surviving copy. Well, I've checked on Trove for the police report in the Argus of 8th of May, 1860, and it's there, so clearly the copy that's been digitised wasn't the same one Julef had used his penknife on. You do find, though, from time to time, odd gaps in Trove newspapers where an item or even a whole page, sometimes an entire issue, has been surreptitiously lifted from some library reading room. Back to Joseph Julef, though, in court, over his newspaper clipping, he appeared very sorry for what he'd done, said the Argus, and actually shed tears. So the magistrate discharged him. Every year, the library's annual report would enumerate the books that had been counted as missing, presumed stolen, and the instances of mutilation noted during that year's stock take. In 1863, there was even issued a black catalogue of works stolen and at large, it listed 44 titles. And every year, on cue, 
there would follow a jubilee of hand-wringing and vociferating in the press. Here's a sample from the Herald in 1863. We should like to devise brave punishments for those who steal or deface library books. We would have them caged at the entrance to the library for a month, exposed to the derisive salutations of honest men. We would inscribe their names in large characters and hang up their portraits, life-size, that the world might make itself familiar with the lineament externe of those who meanly stole what they were too idle to copy. The extreme selfishness displayed in acts of this kind is so peculiarly contemptible that no punishment of an ordinary description appears adequate to meet out a due sufficiency of castigation to these book thugs. And this is from the Herald again nearly 20 years later. I know of no more despicable offence than this. I had rather acquit a burglar or a highwayman than the scurvy fellow who, violating the confidence which has been placed in him, sneaks into our noble library for the sole purpose of stealing. Did you notice that phrase, violating the confidence that has been placed in him? This hints at a long-running debate on the subject of who, exactly, ought to be allowed access to the Melbourne Public Library. Here was one side of the argument, as put in an Argus editorial in 1864. It is not too much to say that there is no other public library in the world like this of ours in Melbourne. Its excellence consists less in the value of what our library contains than in the purpose to which it is devoted and the liberality with which it is used. This is, in fact, the only public library in the world, in the true sense, the only institution free to all comers and to which the poorest as well as the richest reader has at all times easy access. To the earnest student as well as to the toil-worn artisan, the library opens its hospitable doors, and for all, without distinction, is the feast provided and a place appointed. This is the peculiar glory of the Melbourne Library. There was a guy called Herman Beckler, a Bavarian doctor and botanist, who arrived in Melbourne in 1859, and in a letter home to his brother, he described his experience of the Melbourne Public Library. He wrote, One signs one's name, takes off one's hat, and goes in. And there before one is a large library. An excellent book collection is at the disposal of anyone interested, be he a learned man or the most humble worker. Dear Carl, this is a wonderful, free, civilised land. There is no one checking to see whether anyone is stealing a book. The best book in the library is too good for nobody. And here a writer in the age seems to concur. In no other city in the world, they wrote, do we find literary entertainment of the best description placed within reach of all classes so liberally and unreservedly. By the simple process of signing his name, the poorest citizen acquires the right of luxuriating in a store of bookish wealth which none but those of the amplest private fortune could pretend to rival. But that same writer goes on to observe that a very large number of the visitors enter the library building with no defined object whatsoever. They merely come in out of reach of the sun or the rain to have a read. And for these unattached visitors, he'd like to see a separate room set up, supplied with an ample allowance of the best cereals with popular, i.e. cheap, editions of the standard poets, 
historians and novelists, and with such educational and mechanical treatises as are written for popular circulation. And he concluded, An attendant, stationed in the anteroom, might easily discriminate between those visiting the library for defined objects of research or study and those entering merely to pass away an hour and direct them accordingly. So much for too good for nobody. A journalist in the Ballarat Star observed, as did many of his peers, that the library has been made a resort for a large proportion of the loafing population. Men go there to lounge hours away because the place is, on the whole, pleasanter than the steps or portico of a public building and they are less liable to attract the unfriendly notice of a policeman. In fact, retired constables would be favoured for the position of library attendant. Writers either for or to the newspapers were constantly complaining to the effect that the reading room is becoming a mere divan for drunken idlers, or that, visiting the library lately, we observed persons asleep in the galleries, evidently suffering a recovery from a recent debauch, and in a condition of uncleanliness which rendered contiguity decidedly unpleasant. We think personal cleanliness should be an enforced condition preliminary to admission, not only for the sake of the books, but in mercy to the olfactory nerves of other visitors. And there was this. Observe that young animal who, as he turns the leaves of the book he reads, wets the tip of his finger with his tongue and thrusts it against the page. Would you not like to give him a birching? I should. For sure, I hold a book precious to be kept clean and unpolluted. For that's spelled F-A-U-G-H, exclamation mark. For there are few matters more offensive than to mark thumb smuts upon the pages of the book you read. The usual antidote proposed for undesirable behaviour in the library, besides exhibiting the culprits in cages at the library door or whipping them through the marketplace, well, actually, it arose from a warning issued by the library trustees in 1863 that unless the public generally aid in protecting the property of the library and in the detection of the offenders, there appeared to be no option left but to enforce what must be an obnoxious ticket system. This obnoxious ticket system would require any person wishing to use the library to apply for a ticket of admission by producing letters of recommendation from two property owners vouching for their being a fit and proper person and accepting liability for any loss, damage or misbehaviour caused by them. Under the ticket system, no one but library staff would have access to the shelves and ticket holders would have to sign for every book supplied to them. This was the system in use at the British Library and so naturally was held up as the gold standard. Again and again, commentators in the press called for the introduction of such a system here to keep out loafers and those who turn pages with a wet finger. The great obstacle to the ticket system would appear to have been Redmond Barry. Sir Redmond, he became, the Melbourne Public Library's founding father and guiding spirit. It was he who'd shaped the library rules, such as they were, that admission was free to all persons 14 years and older, without any introduction or guarantee. No book was to be taken out of the library, and no person was permitted to mark or injure a book in any way. And that was it. Access to the shelves and all the books was open to all who entered. And it was thanks to Redmond Barry's continued and intransigent presence on the library's board of trustees until his death in 1880 that threats and imprecations to introduce a ticket system 
were able to gain no traction. Before there was a public library, this was back in the 1840s, when Redmond Barry was a young, slightly wild Irish barrister, almost as new to Melbourne as Melbourne was new to itself, he'd welcomed artisans and working men of the self-improving kind to use his personal library of an evening. In 1859, a stonemason, addressing a meeting of the fledgling eight-hour-day movement, paid tribute to Judge Barry, the friend and patron of the poor man, in obtaining for him the boon of free access to the public library. This was the same Judge Barry who would sentence Ned Kelly to hang. When Barry passed the customary benediction, May God have mercy on your soul, Kelly replied, I will see you there when I go. And sure enough, Barry would die just 12 days after Ned. But a few years before he turned up his toes, Redmond Barry had been a delegate to the 1877 London Conference of Librarians in the company of such luminaries as Melville Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System fame. There, Barry put the view that everyone had the right to go to the shelves and choose his books for himself. But the rest of the librarians there howled him down, like Mr Magnuson of the Cambridge University Library, who dismissed the notion of free access to the shelves as the dangerous gratification of a popular fancy. But uncowed, Barry went on to extrapolate his views in an appendix to the published conference papers. Many public libraries at the time ostentatiously called themselves free libraries, but freedom, wrote Redmond Barry, is so inherent in our constitution that we are content to enjoy it without a prominent use of the word. Our library is free in every sense. Persons of both sexes and all nations above 14 years of age are admitted free. The enjoyment of the use of the library is free. Each reader may enter at 10am and remain till 10pm and may take from any shelf any book without being asked a question. That 14 years of age was itself a remarkable freedom at a time when many such institutions wouldn't admit anyone under 21. But Barry, at the Librarians' Conference in London, boldly put the view that if it were necessary to deprive people of seven years' reading, it would be better to strike off the seven years at the other end and disqualify people at 63. And this, he pointed out, was an argument to his own disadvantage since such a rule would see him excluded from the library. He'd just turned 64. And you know, despite what most newspaper commentators would have had you believe, Barry's faith in extending such freedoms was by and large borne out. The library's 1874 annual report showed that more than a quarter of a million people had visited the library in the past year, and each of these visitors, observed the Australasian, was at perfect liberty to take what books he pleased from the shelves. And how many persons out of this immense number abused their privilege? The answer is striking. At the stock-taking, there were found missing just 20 volumes. Yes, in spite of the sermon stealers, the generous rule of free and unrestricted access to the books for all comers has been amply justified. And there was this from the Herald in 1881. The small number of books which have been injured or stolen since the library has been open proves that the confidence in the honesty of Victorians shown by the library's great patron, the late Sir Edmund Barry, was by no means misplaced. Besides which, the writer went on, the much-vaunted ticket system intended to keep out the riffraff didn't even work at the British Library. The authorities there hardly ever pass a year without having to prosecute persons holding reading tickets for the theft of books 
from their noble reading room. Nor does the ticket system give any better protection against the injury of books. Some two years ago, at the entrance to the British Library's reading room, we displayed several volumes of the Quarterly Review and Blackwood's magazine from which pages had been wantonly torn by the dozen. So after all, concluded the Herald, we with liberty are not worse off than they are in the old country with all their elaborate precautions. By the 1880s, book stealing at the Melbourne Public Library seems to have tapered off considerably. Sentences had grown more lenient. For instance, James Glass, a billiard marker, got just a month's prison in 1881 for stealing memoirs of the Empress Catherine, and the press were less inclined to bay for blood and banishment. And anyway, you could say that the library was asking for it. The public library's seal, stamped in gold on many of those four shilling and sixpence uniform bindings, featured a crest with a shelf of books and this motto, Delectant Domi non impediunt fores peregrinantur. The motto comes from Cicero and translates as a delight at home and no hindrance abroad. It's meant to refer, of course, to books, and the quotation continues, they are companions by night and in travel and in the country. Now, is it just me, or did the library's motto seem to invite theft, or at any rate to contradict the rule that no books may be taken out of the library? And as for the library soap, it hinted at what, from the first, amounted to the only real qualification for admission because in 1856, the year the library opened, it was plainly stated that every person is admitted, even though he be coatless, if only his hands are clean. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia, and it's produced by my muse and sidekick, Mrs Bradley. Take a look at my show page, robinanear.com slash nothing on TV for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. This time you can see some of the books mentioned in this episode that were stolen from the library and returned to captivity and are still there, albeit with their stamps erased or torn out. There's an email link at the show page too, if you'd like to get in touch. But no Twitter or Facebook because, as you know by now, nothing on TV is a social media dead zone and happy to be. You can find and download past episodes of the podcast at the show page or else at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Why not subscribe and have new episodes drop like magic into your podcast feed? Also at the show page, you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.